All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 9. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 9. We're going to begin reading in just a few moments in verse number 38. I said to you last week, if you were here, I know there's a lot of coming and going with uh, summer travel and summer obligations. If you were with us on last Sunday, you heard me encourage you that perhaps mastering the message of last week's text and this week's text stands to really distinguish us from the world around us. Last week, we talked about the priority of servanthood in the believer's life, that the true disciple of Jesus Christ understands and embraces the role of servant, that unlike the world in the kingdom, the way forward is back. The way up is down. The way to exaltation is humiliation. The way to be first is to be last. In a lot of ways, it's, it's really in conflict with the way we understand even the kingdom in the present hour. Lots of conferences on leadership. Not a lot of gatherings focused on servanthood or service. So embracing the role of servanthood, being willing to be counted last rather than first, it is the first of those ways I suggested last week might separate us from the world around us. But there's a second thing, and they're pretty closely connected, that comes up here in verses 38 through 42. The idea of being willing to forego personal gain or the building up of your own personal kingdom in order that the kingdom of God would advance. When you hear about something good happening in someone else's life, what's your first response? Are you, are you glad for them that something good has happened in their life? Or is there just a touch of jealousy that something good isn't happening in your life? When you hear of another church in our community or in the county or maybe in a far-off place that God seems to be blessing richly, they're enjoying the fruit of ministry and the blessing that you've so prayed for and wanted for in your own church family? Is your spinal reaction to that news one of gladness at what God is doing there or one of dread that God is, isn't doing the same thing here? It's, see, I, I think we get this all mixed up sometimes. It's human nature. We are a carnal people. We want for ourselves. This gets back to the whole business of not coveting. I, I think for most Western Christians, thou shalt not covet is kind of a secondary commandment. We fail to see the force and the power, the consequences of that sin. But here Jesus addresses that for the disciples within the context of ministry. And what he seems to be saying to them is, here in the last days of his own earthly life, before setting them loose as trailblazers and leaders within the kingdom of Christ's work here on earth, is that there is simply no place for envy, for, for the exaltation of personal kingdoms, if the kingdom of God is to advance as Christ intends it would. With your Bibles open to Mark 9 and verse 38, I'd like to invite you now to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Here the Bible says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. 
Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. Now, for most of your translations, there's going to be a paragraph break or some indication of transition to the next subject, but it's my conviction that verse 42 serves kind of a, a, it's a transitional statement from verses 38 through 41 and what follows in verses 43 and following. Verse 42 says, But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let me give you this morning just quickly four principles for keeping the kingdom of God before our personal or selfish ambitions. Number one, true disciples are not concerned with the exaltation of themselves or their group. Now let's set the context of our passage this morning. Look back to verse 38. John said to him, it's interesting here that it's John who's mentioned specifically. If you've been tracking with our study, you know that in Mark chapters 8 through 10, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection three times. And following each of those predictions of his death and resurrection, one of the inner circle steps forward to indicate for us, to give us an example of what it looks like to misunderstand the nature of Jesus' death and resurrection and its influence in our life. The first time Jesus says, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again, Peter pulls him inside, aside and says, no, no, it mustn't be this way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The second time is our text here when it's John who seems to miss the mark. And he says, someone came and they tried to be a part of our work, but this work is exclusive to us. So we turned him aside. Later in Mark chapter 10, it's James who steps forward to speak on behalf of himself and his brother to say to Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom, we'd like a position on the right hand and on the left. It seems to be Mark's subtle way of indicating for us that even the disciples who were nearest to Jesus misunderstood the consequences of the gospel in their life on some level. Now, if Peter, James, and John can miss the heavy implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life, walking beside Jesus, sitting at the feet of Jesus to hear him give explanation as to the meaning of the gospel. How much more do we stand to miss the mark, to miss the heavy consequences of the gospel in our own life? So Jesus is helping us to understand the fullness of what the gospel means for our life. What Mark intends when he records in Mark, 30, Mark 8, 34, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The next chapter is helping us to understand how that looks in our lives as individuals. John said, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. We saw him, he was out there, he was doing ministry, he was driving out demons, he was performing exorcisms, if you will, and we shut him down because he wasn't a part of our group. He wasn't a part of the inner circle. Now what must have made this sting a little more for John and the other disciples 
is the fact that we're only paragraphs removed from Mark chapter 9 when a certain father brought his demon-possessed son before Jesus. They asked that they would cast the demon out and the disciples had no power. It's there that Jesus explains this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So not only, John says, is he not a part of the inner circle, but he seems to have, in some ways, outperformed us. He's not a part of our group. He's doing our work, and he seems to be, on some level, doing it better than we are, although I'm sure John wouldn't have put it in those terms. And here, Jesus pulls him aside in verse 39, and he says, don't stop him. Now, I want you to let, for a moment, your hearts and minds settle into what John has just said. But because it's a, it's a statement, it's a, word, it's a word of reflection that I have heard over and over and over again in different contexts, couched in different terms through 15 years of ministry. They're doing something over there, but they're not a part of our circle. So we, we're, we're not fired up about what they're doing. They're doing something. It looks a little different than what we have been doing. It, it, it may not completely conform to our ideas about how things ought to be done, so we have ostracized them. Or we do the Mississippi thing, the passive-aggressive thing, and we just don't talk to them. We just don't fellowship with them, at least not while they're around. In Mississippi, we're too nice to be ugly to your face. We wait till you leave, or we just behave in a way that's more socially acceptable. Jesus says, don't stop him, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. So Jesus begins to talk about the benefits of this brother and others who are doing work in Jesus' name. Who are out there doing ministry that makes a difference in the world around. Pressing for us this idea that true disciples are not concerned with the exaltation of their inner circle. With the celebration of their unique set of gifts and abilities. But with the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Kingdom advancement, in all likelihood, will not include the celebration of our personalities or our church. If we really want the kingdom to be advanced, it has to be bigger than us. It must be bigger than us. Surely it's bigger than us. Now, I hear us missing this. Us, I'm speaking of the church universal, specifically the church in our culture. I have for all of my ministry, been involved in ministry in rural Mississippi. And, and really, that's true even in DeSoto County. We still qualify. And all over our state, there, there, are, there are churches in locations where populations have moved. I'm not talking about demographic shifts. I mean, there used to be people there, and now no one is there. And I have found myself counseling with pastors and leaders in those churches over and over and over and over and over again. A lot, a lot of those, this will sound funny to some of you younger folks, but a lot of those churches were established in communities when you walked to church or you rode a wagon or a horse to church and people just don't ride wagons anymore. And so people are passing them by. There, there's, there's not the usefulness for that assembly of God's people in that area that there used to be. And my, my counsel, my encouragement has been 
to join with a like-minded fellowship somewhere else. Combine your, combine your resources. Get together. Be encouraged together. And I, and I have yet, in all of those conversations for 15 years, found one of those gatherings who was willing to do that. To do that. Because the institution, the building, the people in the cemetery meant more in most cases than the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus. Y'all tracking with me this morning? If kingdom advancement means the dissolution of Longview Point Church, let it be. Now, God forbid that be the case, but if that's what it takes for the kingdom to be advanced, let it be. I was uh, sitting in uh, with a, a group of Christian leaders just a couple of weeks ago and listening to their conversation. I, you know how it is when you're at a table and there are multiple conversations going on, and I was involved in a conversation here, but I really wanted to be involved in this conversation here. <laughs> the, the discussion was about, was about church planning, in particular a church that was planted in one of these brothers' areas, and this was the comment. And you'd be proud of your pastor. I walked in the Spirit through the whole thing. He's, there was a church planted about six or seven miles from this church. And, and the guy said, you know, Southern Baptists didn't used to do that, plant right on top of another church. And I'm thinking, brother, you are in the most populated metropolitan area in the state of Mississippi. People dying and going to hell every minute within the shadow of your church. You have bigger fish to fry than some game or competition with a church down the street. This is not a contest. We are not engaged in a game or a competition. If anything, we are involved in a spiritual battle. But our enemy is not flesh and blood. It is the powers and the principalities of darkness. It is the lostness of the world around us. And we must, we must, we must be willing to forego our own celebrity, our own exaltation, our own acknowledgement even, if the kingdom is to go forth as it should. Whenever the presentation of monuments and methods and group status becomes primary, the church always dies in the wake of those idols. True discipleship does not concern itself with the exaltation of its own personal kingdom. Rather, its interest is in the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. John is encouraged, as are the other disciples, that he not be stopped. And then Jesus goes on and he explains, you don't stop him because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. Whoever's not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. The language here, the Greek language here, suggests to us that Jesus is reeling off a series of three answers as to why you should not stop him. But the primary reason that he shouldn't be stopped, as you see in your text, is that the man is laboring in Jesus' name, for Jesus' name, and because of Jesus' name. It's the name of Jesus that validates the ministry of this brother. Now, s some of you who are given, you are inclined toward finding a heretic under every rock. You're, you're thinking through reasons that this doesn't work itself out in your particular instance. 
Here, we're, we're helped to understand that here is a brother who is serving faithfully. He's serving biblically. He's doing it the way Jesus would be pleased with it do, being done because he's doing what he does in Jesus' name. There is power in Jesus' name. In the book of Acts, the interesting thing there, when, when James and when Peter and John are arrested, when others are arrested, they always charge them no longer to preach in Jesus' name. They never say, don't preach. They always say, don't preach in Jesus' name. Because the power is not so much in Peter and John's presentation. The power is not in their persuasion. The power is in Jesus' name. 2,000 years later, the power is still in Jesus' name. Jesus says, don't shut him down. Whoever is not against us is with us. Principle number two. True discipleship is not, or true disciples, are not unnecessarily divisive. Now, here's where we stand to really mark ourselves off from the world around. Jesus says, essentially, John, disciples, you're being unnecessarily divisive. You're cutting yourself off from like-minded brothers who are doing something that matters in Jesus' name in the world around. Now, we, we are living in the day and age of unnecessary divisiveness. You, you can't read the paper, watch the news, without there being some kind of effort at stirring division between citizens. And it makes its way into the church. Because we all sit and gawk at cable news networks, and then we bring that trash into our personal lives. We talk that way. We reflect on those themes, the most divisive topics that can be talked about or meditated on. Those are the things that fill our minds, and they're the things that consequently fill our conversation. We gather for connect groups and worship service, and in the lobby, we talk about the most divisive issues of the day. And I realize that there are real pressing differences between parties within our nation today. I get that. I understand. I'm not even talking about politics. I just mean within groups within our country. But under the banner of the gospel, under the banner of the gospel, what else really matters? The gospel pulls us together from different cultures, from different backgrounds, from different races, from different parts of the country, with different hobbies, with different likes, with different interests, and it knits us together powerfully for kingdom advancement. When it comes to Jesus' name, where the name of Jesus is concerned, human considerations, the natural divisions that we impose upon ourselves are subverted by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for that? True disciples are not unnecessarily divisive. Now let me help you out in some practical ways here. I want you to note, maybe write this in the margin of your bulletin or your Bible, that everyone who disagrees with you on some theological issue is not a heretic. That can be a helpful thing to take note of. Now, there are heretics out there, which complicates the issue. But everybody who disagrees with you on anything is not a heretic. There there are about three or four issues or three or four items that you can run a preaching or teaching ministry through. And if it passes these tests, you'll be certain to find something there that will be wholesome food for your soul. 
If a person understands, if a teaching ministry believes and affirms the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, I know that may seem obscure in some of your minds. I'm not sure we talk enough about the Trinity, but that's a pretty good gauge because it's a foundational theological issue. If you get the foundation wrong, the whole house will fall, and the Trinity is foundational. When you're listening to the radio preacher or watching the television preacher, you'll do a lot better on the radio than you will on TV. Evaluate them on how they understand or what they're teaching concerning the doctrine of the Trinity. Secondly, evaluate them based on how they understand the nature and the divinity of Jesus. The the age-old mystery, Jesus 100% God and 100% man, that's who he is. If they get that wrong, if they monkey with the doctrine of Christ, that's a foundational issue and the whole house falls. If they understand the condition of mankind, that we are irreparably broken, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, and only the gospel can overcome that. They say things like, people are generally good. You're in dangerous water. That's a foundational issue. And when the foundation is wrong, the whole house falls. If they have a high view of the Scripture, you'll be safe there. There can be, there, there can be encouragement. There can be fellowship. There can be celebration of what God is doing in that, in that ministry. Here, here's, a, here's a second thing. You don't have to be angry at everyone who disagrees with you on any issue. Remember the good old days when people used to be able to disagree about something and not kill each other? I miss that, you know. Here's another closely following after the former. You don't have to post on social media about everything that you disagree with. Y'all with me? And then here's a fourth and your first real opportunity to be angry at the new preacher. The gospel of Jesus Christ and its advancement is more important than your politics. Now, let me, let me, here's, here's where I'll get in trouble with you before y'all amen me too much. I want y'all to think back at, at the last, oh, think back the last three, four presidential elections. In fact, since 2000. They've all been hotly contested. You always have somewhere between 48 and 50 million votes on either side. It's always really close. In fact, in certain instances, popular vote being, being more uh, on one side than the other in the Electoral College deciding the election. That's been a big topic of conversation. If the, if the way we vote on presidential elections is a reflection of where we are as a country, and I think that's a, I think that's a reasonable point, then 50% of the country disagrees with your political views. And if all you ever say publicly or all you ever post on social media is that if you are a member of the other political party, you are a moron, they will never hear what you have to say about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm, and I'm telling you, ultimately, America has never turned on public politics. It has been protected and preserved by the power of the gospel of Jesus and the hand of God's smiling providence upon us. Some things are more important than our politics. The true disciple 
is not unnecessarily divisive. Now, there are times when it's necessary that division comes. But God did not call all of us to be Old Testament prophets, to adorn ourselves in sackcloth and ashes, and begin to call fire down from heaven on everyone who disagrees with any position we ever think to have. Jesus says, if they're not against us, they're with us. And in the case of this exorcist, he was doing what he did in Jesus' name. Here's the third principle. True disciples can celebrate the victories of other disciples. When Jesus said, if they're not against us, they're for us, he went on in verse 41 and said, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to Christ, I assure you he will not lose his reward. Jesus says, I celebrate the work of everyone who does work in Jesus' name. Consequently, the people of God ought to celebrate the things that Jesus celebrates. Now, what's this business of giving a cup of cold water? It is the most insignificant act of service that could be performed in the ancient Near Eastern culture. It was customary, whether you were a believer, an unbeliever, a Jew, or a Gentile, a, a, a barbarian, or a nobleman, if someone came into your house, you were to provide them with a cup of water. It was just something that you did. And Jesus says the most insignificant act of service that you can possibly do when you do it in Jesus' name is an act of service that is worthy of celebration. Uh Here the person is described as doing what they do because of Jesus' name. And they're doing what they do for the person who they're serving because they're serving in Jesus' name. It is the name of Jesus. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that's driving all of this. It's a gladness at seeing God's work, ultimately, God's work being done. I really really think that where it comes to these issues that unnecessarily divide us, here's, here's the crux of the matter. If you really have a heart to see people saved from their sin, all of these secondary issues find their proper place. They they really do. Things that used to make so much difference, they don't don't matter so much anymore. Our our preferences, uh, that's not such a big deal. We just want to see people saved. We want to see people come to faith in Christ. And I hope that's how we evaluate what we see in the ministry around us. I see this so many times. It, it, it disrupts unity in the church. It causes discord. It, it besets the church and its ability to do what needs to be done to win more people. Celebrate the victory of other disciples. Set your heart on seeing others come to faith in Christ. And everything else finds its place. It's really a matter of seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Here's a fourth and final principle. Verse 42, I really believe, is, is intended to be connected with what is described in verses 38 through 41. There are more people that disagree with that than agree with that, but that's my firm conviction. At the very least, it is a transitional uh, verse or a couple of transitional sentences that helps us to move from 38 to 41 down to 42 and following. Here's what Jesus says there. Whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown 
into the sea. Now, here's why I think that this is really important for us. Because if I'm understanding what Jesus is saying correctly, then what he's saying is that John and disciples, this, this approach that you've taken that excludes others from being a part of the work, not only is it counterproductive, but it can be harmful to my people. It can keep people from coming to me. When the church is divided against itself, when we spend all of our time straining at gnats rather than sharing the gospel, not only is that counterproductive in practical ways, it can be really harmful spiritually to those around us. It can set your brothers and sisters back. And it will certainly prevent others from outside of the church coming into the church or coming into church groups, to gospel-focused groups, to hear about the gospel. This is the kind of thing that causes the downfall of, of other believers. Let me share another controversial anecdote with you this morning, and someone will disagree with this one as well, but I, I'm fairly convinced that this is right. Every year I go to the Southern Baptist Convention and I hear someone get up and they talk about declining church membership and declining baptisms. Now, I think there are a couple of reasons why that is the case. I don't doubt that there is a declining interest in evangelism, that we're not doing that the way that we used to do that, and that needs to be talked about, and it needs to be addressed. I got you on all that. There's also the phenomenon of a generation that doesn't get fired up about nickels and noses and so it's not really excited about objectifying people with numbers and making reports about those issues so there may not be a lot of consistency there but beyond that I, th I think that most of those baptisms and church members have moved into non-denominational churches because frankly they're sick of the bickering and the bureaucracy that comes with being a part of so many southern baptist churches now, that's anecdotal. Somebody bring the research say, you're all wrong, preacher. But, but may, maybe I am, but I'm dead on with bickering and bureaucracy, and there ain't no doubt about it. So they just move on. They just move on. So the response to that, if we're, if we're operating according to the principles of the passage at hand, is, is not to say we've lost our share of the market, and we need to right the ship so that we can win them back. No, no. The response is to acknowledge that perhaps our outlook, our attitudes about evangelism have been improper. To repent of those, not to win back a share of the market, but to see the kingdom advance greatly. That's how you do it. That's what you, that's what you do here. True disciples care for the well-being of other disciples in that they don't want to do anything in their personal life life that would inhibit others from coming to faith in Jesus. I, I don't want to do anything in my personal life that would prevent someone else from coming to faith in Jesus. If that means arguing with a brother or a sister, saying something a little boneheaded or questionable on Facebook, I don't want to do those things if they could in any way, shape, form, or fashion keep someone else from coming to faith in Jesus. And you should be careful about that, meticulous in your personal life to ensure that you're not doing things, saying things, 
posting things, behaving in ways that will prevent others from hearing the gospel. In, in, my, in my first church, um, I, I, I thought about this not long ago because I had a delivery related to this story. In my first church, I, I was preaching um, in the Corinthian passage where Paul talks about questionable issues and, and how you refrain from those. And my illustration for that morning was the little, you know, the root beer bottles that look like real, real beer bottles. If you really want good root beer, you got to buy it in a bottle that looks like you're drinking beer. But as the pastor, you know, I'm not keen on giving the impression that I'm having beer, you know. It's not a good thing for the Baptist preacher. And, and so I poked a little fun at that, talked about that a little bit. And, and for the past 14, 13, 14 years, there's a, there's a man from that church. From time to time, I'll come home. It doesn't matter where I lived, where I was. I'd come home, there'd be a case of, of that kind of root beer on my, on, on my steps. And uh, we'll see if he makes it to DeSoto County with his root beer delivery in the next few months. And, I, and, and that's kind of a funny, sort of a goofy example of that. But it doesn't hurt to be that meticulous. If the decisions that we make, if the posture that we take toward other brothers and sisters can be a determining factor in whether someone gives an ear to the gospel or not, then these are gravely serious issues. Would you agree with that? Isn't it a wonderful thing how the gospel has pulled us together? I mean... We are a strange hodgepodge of people. There's nothing else in the world, nothing in the world would have called together this group on a rainy, nasty summer morning. Could have been on vacation in the sun. You could have been at home in the dry. I hope no one's car is floating when you get to the driveway, to the parking lot out there. But we're here. We're here. Because God has saved us. And in Christ, There is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile. People of every tribe and tongue and nation have been called together in the power of the gospel. Now that is a remarkable thing. Now don't you think that if we live in light of that reality, in the face of the insane degree of division that we're seeing in the culture around us, don't you think that stands to make us stand out a little bit? It gives us a platform, doesn't it? A platform to say to the world around us that 2,000 years ago God looked upon us with such affection that he sent his only begotten son That Jesus would die a sinner's death not for crimes that he had done, but for my sin and for your sin. He shed his righteous blood. The one who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. They killed him, but the grave could not hold him. The third day Jesus rose again, and he met with his disciples and others to prove his resurrection. He ascended to the right hand of God. And even at this moment, a living Lord Jesus Christ, with hands open wide, beckons all to come. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Away from the chaos and the division and the insanity of the world around us, come to the Lord of peace and find peace everlasting.